Don't you love those stories where wrongs are made right? I don't want to call them revenge stories because I don't think we should delight in revenge stories, but especially when it's an innocent sufferer and then the story goes on and there's this rightness made. Like when you know, when you see Liam Neeson's family start to get messed with, like, you know, okay, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> Let me bust out the popcorn. One of my favorites is The Count of Monte Cristo. I haven't read the novel, but the, the movie now is 16, 17, 18 years old. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, there's this man named Edmund Dantes, and everything's going right for Edmund. He's got a good buddy named Fernand. He's got the woman of his dreams, and everything is good. But Fernand gets jealous of Edmund, wants his, wants his lady. And so he betrays him, and he ends up getting, getting him locked up for like 15 years in this castle, and he's locked up. But while he's locked up, he meets this old man who teaches him, among other things, how to sword fight, and he ends up telling him how to get out of that place and then finds this treasure, tells him about a treasure. Well, the old man ended up dying in the escape, but Edmund goes and he finds the treasure, and he goes and he buys an estate, and he claims now he is the Count of Monte Cristo, and he is on a mission to get revenge against Fernand and get his lady back, and that's what he does. He goes and he surprises them and it ends with this epic scene where there's this sword fight. Edmund ends up stabbing Fernand right through the chest and Fernand's last words are, what happened to your mercy? And Edmund's like, I'm a count, not a saint. Walks away. Just, you know, something lights you up about that, right? I think it's because we're made in the image of God. We're drawn to stories where justice prevails. But what we're going to see this morning is Peter is going to show that it is not our job to make vengeance and retaliation as Christians. We're going to see it's ultimately the Lord's. So today we're in chapter 2, continuing our section here. It's really under verse 11. We're going to look at 18 to 25, but look again. This heading is still the heading for our text this morning. Look at 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So what follows then is basically ways to live the good life, ways to live the contrast life and that our life would ultimately lead others to glorify God. And so that's where we come to our passage, verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For 
You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This morning, I want us to see three things here from this passage that Christ is our authority, Christ is our example, and Christ is our substitute. So first, Christ, our authority. Look again there at verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And I say Christ our authority because at the end of the day, what we've seen is there are various authorities, but at the end of the day, our call to submit to the authorities we're under is really a call to submit to God, right? We saw that in verse 13. He said, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him. We saw that in Romans, Romans 13 last week as well. So it's Christ our authority and he exhorts here, slaves to submit to unjust masters. Christian slaves to submit to unjust masters. And it is very important. We talked about this in Colossians as well as in Philemon. It is very important in our minds. We distinguish this type of slavery versus what you think of when you hear the word slavery. There was massive difference. Now, both are despicable, but there are massive differences that we need to keep in mind when Peter's writing to this to a Roman audience. For one, and most importantly, the slavery in the Greco-Roman world in the first century was not race-based, unlike the slavery we think of. Again, both despicable, but not race-based. In fact, in, in what we think of in Britain and America, slaves were kidnapped and they were sold as personal property based on race, based on skin pigment. In first century Rome, it was an entirely different situation. Slaves could receive an education. They could work as tutors or doctors or accountants. They could buy their freedom if the opportunity arose, much different than the slavery that we know in our, our despicable history. It was a central part of the economic and cultural world in Rome. One-fourth of the population were slaves in first century Rome. And so Peter doesn't try to overthrow it. The church was a tiny little sect. It would have been pointless. But tries to begin to transform it through Christian witness. Scripture nowhere commends the institution of slavery, but does at times seek to regulate it. And that's what Peter's doing here. It does at times seek to undermine it. If you remember a few months ago when we looked at Philemon. So Peter has no desire to uphold slavery here, but he is talking within an existing social structure and he's concerned primarily with Christians living in a contrast way. Even addressing slaves was countercultural. But according to scripture, they're dignified human beings made in the image of God. And as Galatians 3.28 puts it, there is neither slave nor free. This was absolutely countercultural and again, cross contrast society in the church. Revolutionary. And Peter already said, we're all slaves. Look at verse 16, 1 Peter 2, 16. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. And then Peter relativizes the call here to submit because notice what he says. He says, slaves submit, but then notice what he says in the very next verse there in verse 19, for it's commendable if someone, anyone, he widens his aim. So submit, he says, not only to the good and considerate, but also to the harsh, to the unjust. 
It's commendable if you bear up under unjust suffering. But if there's nothing, there is nothing to commend if you're suffering because you're doing wrong. That's on you, Peter says. You know, if you're getting troubled by your boss because you're constantly dropping the ball, your work is weak, you're always late, you're always doing the bare minimum, Peter says that's not to your credit. You're getting what you deserve. But if you are doing your part, if you're being faithful, you're working hard, and you still receive unjust treatment, submit to it and bear up under it. It says it's commendable. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God, he says. Just another side note, Peter assumes that slaves, even this type of slavery, can be treated unjustly. In the world which he's writing, there was no such thing as an injustice to a slave. In fact, Aristotle said no injustice can be done to slaves, not Peter. Peter says there can be unjust treatment of them, again, because they're human beings. And so submit, he says. It's a hard call, isn't it? It's hard for us, as we talked about last week, to submit to authorities. It is especially hard when we have to submit to authorities that really have no business being in authority. But that's what he says there, not only to the good. Not only to the good and considered, but also to those who are harsh and crooked. And so some of you have, I mentioned Nazi HOAs, unreasonable HOAs. You know what God's calling you to do? Submit. Some of you have extremely unjust bosses, harsh bosses. You know what God's calling you to do? Submit to them. This is hard. I, was, uh, I didn't have to work in high school. My parents were like, you know what, we'll get you what you need. But if you go beyond that, you're going to have to get a job. And so I had bought that lie that to be truly happy and to be truly fulfilled, I needed the name brand, you know. So you know, I could get a pair of jeans, but really to be happy and to be cool, I needed them Jabos. I needed them Jays. I needed them Docs. I'm dating myself here a little bit. And so I worked, and I worked for this ranch in Baird. And this guy was a drunken tyrant. And he would have me doing all sorts of work. I mean, I would paint. And he was so critical of my painting, I developed a syndrome. I can't paint to this day. I see a paintbrush, I just twitch a little bit. <laughs> he was so harsh. And he would drive around on his golf cart with his styrofoam cup full of something strong with his little cattle prod. wasn't for me. It was for his 200-pound uh, demon-possessed billy goat. Another story for another day. He would drive around and I'd be piling up brush and burning it. He'd make me use an ax when he had like three chainsaws in his, in his barn, seven bucks an hour. I'm not bitter though. <laughs> but what's my call? I wasn't a believer then. What would my call though? My call would be if I'm going to work for him to work for him. And that's what I did. Submit to him. And slaves here are a paradigm for all believers because all are called to submit. Again, I mentioned last week, if you have trouble submitting to authority, you're going to have trouble with the God of Scripture because he hasn't left us another option. This is what we're called to do. But here's the thing. If we're Christians, we should be very used to submission. What is submission? It's saying no to us and yes to the Lord. And we're called to do that every single day. Submission can be defined as dying to self. And what does Jesus say? Whoever wants to be my disciple. And there is no difference between a disciple and a believer. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross. And remember, the cross is an instrument of execution. Die to yourself. You want to follow Jesus. You want to be a Christian. Here's what you got to do. Deny yourself, die to self, take up your cross every day. And follow me. And so we should be very used to submitting and saying no to self and denying ourselves and saying yes to Jesus. And here we see it's pleasing to God to submit to the authorities we're under. Christ is our authority. Number two, Christ is our example. Look at verse 21. 
To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You're called to endure unjust suffering. Peter says you can endure. You have an example in Jesus Christ. Again, to be called to be a Christian is to be called to suffer. To be called to be a Christian is to be called to suffer. To be called to be a Christian is to be called to submit. How's that for a marketing plea? Come submit and suffer. That's what it means to follow Jesus. This life ain't easy, is it? It is harder to follow Jesus than it is to follow the world. But it is worth it. It is worth it in this life and it is worth it in the next. And Christ has left us an example. This word here for example is the word that was often used for children in terms of tracing. Like tracing, teaching them the alphabet. They would trace to learn how to write their name. This is the word for example here. Jesus is the pattern. We align to him. We trace the footsteps of Jesus. He's our example, our model, our pattern, our paradigm, not only for unjust suffering, but for all of life. When it comes to humility, Jesus is our example. Put others first. Why? You need to have that mindset, the same mindset of Jesus, who though he was divine, he didn't use that as, a, as something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a slave, the form of a, a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death. Humility, he is our example. When it comes to love, Jesus is our example. Greater love than no one is this to lay down one's life for another. When it comes to generosity, Jesus is our example. In those chapters on giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we read this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Want to learn how to be generous? Look at Jesus, who gave it up for your sake. When it comes to forgiveness, Jesus is our example. Ephesians 4.32, forgive just as God in Christ forgave you. When it comes to marital commitment and sacrificial love, Jesus is our example. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When it comes to serving others, Jesus is our example. After he washes the feet of his disciples, he says, I've set you an example, same word that you should do as I have done for you. Mark 10 said you should put others first. We should be servants of all for because the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. He's our example. When it comes to not pleasing ourselves but to pleasing others, Romans 15, 3, because Jesus Christ did not please himself. He is our example. His path is to be our path. To this you were called. We are to follow his steps. And his path, notice, was suffering, then glory. That was the pattern of Jesus, and that's the pattern of our life. There will be high spots in this life, no doubt, but there will be a lot of suffering. The glory is coming, though. Jesus' past condition, his past suffering is our present condition. But Jesus' current, present glory is our future condition. Suffering, then glory. That's the pattern of the Christian life. To this you were called. 
And then in our passage, surprise, surprise, Peter quotes the Old Testament. And surprise, surprise, it's from that section of Isaiah 40 and following. The fifth gospel. Well known. The song of the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 53. Something we ought to be familiar with. So I actually want to read the whole section that Peter quotes here. Isaiah chapter 52 begins, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And then we have the song of the suffering servant in 52 verse 13. I want to read the whole chapter. Peter alludes to it multiple times here in these verses. Written 800 years before Jesus came, yet as if it were pinned underneath the hill of Golgotha. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the greats. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Notice again the, the example Peter calls us to in verse 21. 
To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, Isaiah 53. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is our example. Though he was falsely accused, he was beaten. He didn't sin against those who were persecuting him. In fact, what did he do? Prayed for them. No deceit was found in his mouth. I wonder, how do you react when you're persecuted? What words do you say when you are falsely accused? When they hurled insults, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Retaliation has no place in the kingdom of Christ. We do not retaliate. In fact, we bless. That's what Peter's going to call us to in the next chapter. Look over there at chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called, same phrase, so that you might inherit a blessing. We don't retaliate. We don't take vengeance. In fact, we love and we bless. This is an extremely hard command, isn't it? I think it's one of the hardest to obey, and I think it's also one of the one we ignore the most. Don't retaliate. You don't ignore. You don't avoid. You don't slander. You love. You bless those who slander you. Jesus was very clear about this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. He says this, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Our King, our Lord says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So we follow the example of Jesus and we follow the teaching of Jesus and we do not retaliate. Instead, we bless. And we're able to do that because we are blessed. In fact, we're blessed when we bless. He says that in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad. The apostles followed the example of Jesus. You remember when they were persecuted? Acts chapter 4. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering for the name. I wondered, is this, is this where you're at? Are you this kind of believer that when persecuted and insulted, you don't seek to repay with vengeance, but you seek to bless? You seek to love. You rejoice because you're being persecuted for the sake of his name. 
And if that's not you, and this seems totally foreign to you, let me just encourage you to get all in because this should be the norm. It's not for so many of us. It should be. So what can we do? Well, I think we do the basics. Are we in the word every day? Are we praying to the Lord? Are we in Christ-centered community? We fully devoted to the Lord because as we do that, we will grow and we will be this kind of person. Looking in there, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is so important. He entrusted himself to the Lord. He trusted his father. When you're going through a hard time, do you trust the Lord? Or do you seek to take things into your own hands? His hands are so much more competent than ours. Do you seek to retaliate or do you trust that God has this thing? He's going to make it right. Jesus trusted his father. Though he was in an agony, we will never know. He was able to say, not my will, your will be done. I trust you. Again, Peter's going to call us to that in chapter 4. Look at 4 verse 19. So then, those who suffer, according to God's will, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Commit yourself to him. He will sort it out. It's not for us to retaliate and to get revenge. By the way, the Apostle Paul puts in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, same, same idea. This, this is a big deal. Same teaching. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. We don't have to take justice into our own hands because vengeance is the Lord's. This isn't a sense of passive resignation. This is patient confidence that God is more competent than us and he will take care of it. He judges justly. As Abraham said, the judge of all the earth will do right. He will right all wrongs. It's not our job. It's his to do so. And so when we're wronged, we're like Jesus. We entrust ourselves to him. Edmund Dantes took it in his own hands and he said, I am a count, I'm not a saint. But brothers and sisters, we are saints. And so we do, we leave it, we leave vengeance in the hands of God. He'll take care of it. And trust yourselves to the faithful creator. And some of you have been wronged in deep, deep ways. Your consolation needs to be, God's going to handle it. He will repay. Vengeance is the Lord's. Christ is our example. But if this is all we had, we'd be in trouble. If Christ was only our example, we would be doomed and we would be damned because we regularly fail to follow him. He's our example, but we need more than an example. And praise God, we have more than an example. We have a substitute. Christ is our example, but Christ is also our substitute. Look at verse 24. Still alluding to Isaiah, he himself 
bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus, yes, he's the pattern of the Christian life, but foundationally, he's the provision for eternal life. We are sinners. That is the fundamental human problem. We have sinned against our Lord and our God. Peter quotes Isaiah 53 here, Isaiah 53, 6, to say, we like sheep have all gone astray. Every one of us has turned from God and turned to whatever we think is best. Remember Genesis 3? We think we know best and that's the way we're going to go. And that has caused a separation between us and God. Our sins have separated us from him. And God is just. We just read it. He judges justly. He will wipe no sin under the rug. He will punish every little white lie because of who he is. That's the problem, isn't it? We're sinful. God is holy. This is the beauty of the cross. Jesus died in our place, in our stead, as our substitutes. He took the penalty we deserved. To use the language of Isaiah, he bore our sins, which means he carried them as a sacrifice. Jesus in the place of sinners. This is what the cross is for. This is what Christianity is all about. In the place of. This little word for may be the most beautiful word in all of scripture. Notice how many times Isaiah uses it. Surely he took our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was, we were healed by his wounds. Our iniquity was laid on him. He was cut off for our transgressions. He bore our iniquities. He was numbered with us, the transgressors. He bore the sin of many in our place, condemned he stood. Christ is our perfect substitute. Lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve to die. This reference here to crucifixion, he bore our sins in his body on the cross, I think reminds us that Jesus, the perfect one, was executed unjustly as a criminal. And there's lots of words used for the word cross. Not lots, there's a few words used for the words cross in the New Testament. And this one's actually the word used for tree. And I think he's alluding back to the Old Testament as he loved to do in Deuteronomy 21 where we see that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed because Jesus was cursed because we deserve the curse and he took our place. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so we sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood. Or behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful souls counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The cross is everything. The cross is our pattern for how we're to live and it's the provision for our salvation. Peter, like every writer in the New Testament, is cross-centered, which is ironic if you know Peter. Remember the Gospels? Several times Jesus is like, all right, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised from the dead. And Peter's like, oh, no, no, no. Oh, Jesus, come here. Um, that's not how it works. In fact, the Gospels say Peter rebuked Jesus. Uh, Lord, you're not going to do that. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. You don't know the things of God. But after that Sunday morning, 
when he saw that empty tomb, he saw that the cross was everything. The example and the substitute. And notice the goal there. Notice the goal of the cross there in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, here's the purpose statement. Those words tip us off. Why in this verse did Jesus die? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. The goal of the cross in this verse is a transformed community. A spiritually healed and healthy church. He took our place so that we might die to sins. So that we might become holy. So that we might live righteous lives. That's the goal. Peter says now we've returned there at the end. We've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus is our shepherd. Same word for pastor. Jesus is our pastor. He's our overseer. The great shepherd. He said this in John 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Jesus is our shepherd. We lack nothing. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. He refreshes our soul. He guides us along the right path for his name's sake. Even though we walk in the darkest valley, we'll fear no evil, for Jesus is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil. Our cup overflows. Surely the goodness and love of Christ will follow us all the days of our life, and we'll dwell with him forever. Isaiah chapter 40, again, speaks of this shepherd. He'll tend his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. He takes care of us. He shepherds us. He pastors us. And he oversees us. He watches over us. He is our guardian. And he's worthy of all. Jesus, our authority, our example, and our substitute. 